This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Brought to you by a newer butcher intro, and on my side of the call at least yeah i was gonna I'm say you speak tough. for yourself miss b i'm real tough over here i got tough i'm tough i'm tough guy yeah yeah, yeah. the people at home can't see your hair i know listen this is supposed to be a viking hairdo but this is um i look more he looks like, like um you know remember how frankenfurter looked at the end of rocky horror after he'd done that number in the pool and he's doing the okay i hate uh, the, you now the I'm going home song and there's the little ponytail on the top and then the sort of bushy uh-huh. on the sides. Yeah. That's the hairdo that Viking uh, Christopher Rice has. Yeah, I'm a big ass so, Viking. I'm a kick ass yeah. Viking over here. Or a sweet yeah, transsexual from hair. transsexual Transylvania. I it's have hard pandemic to say hair. I, I want to say this. I know it's not evergreen. We like these podcasts to be forever. And we're going to talk about a bunch of true crime stuff today that's not headline news related. But I have pandemic hair. And unlike Eric Shaw Quinn, my hair does not grow out to be luxurious and lustrous. It sort of grows up on my head. It gets it gets thick before anything else happens with it. And it's just up like a huge mat of hair on my head. I hate it. I just hate my hair. As soon as there's a vaccine, I'm going to get my hair cut. And uh, this is our podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with an episode about Eric's foot ache. Right, because that's because I've dropped another thing on my foot. Dropped another thing. Listen, we don't I have, have magnetic time. feet. What does that mean? You have magnetic means, feet. Like if something's going to fall. You remember when I like practically broke my foot with a half a pound of butter? Like if I'm going to uh-huh. drop yeah, something, it's going yeah. to land strategically on my feet in such a way that really hurts me. And I'm always like, how is this always possible? Like you think, you know, that I'd step out of the way or miss my foot there's it's not a it's a small apartment but it's not that small also your feet are not that large either they're yeah. sort of dainty and wee all right well i yeah <laughs> okay sure but um whatever there yeah it's not big targets yeah listen we don't have time to be talking about your feet or my hair or any other things that we're talking we have a lot to get through today this is a double stuffed true crime tv club it is it's a very exciting episode we both were talking about what was our because we love true crime but we were talking about what was our first encounter with true crime as Mm -hmm. younger people than Mm -hmm. we are now which is accounts for a sizable amount of time but you know like what was the first round what was the first time that we and i really had to think on it you know i initially was like you did. I, I was surprised. Initial... I thought you would have an answer right off, and you were like, hmm, what's There was the like? helter-skelter stuff, surely the Tate-LaBianca murders um, from back in, in that day, but that was part of, like, the Vietnam War had a much bigger sort of impact on me because the way it was covered on the news, it was like the coronavirus. Like, they mm-hmm. would every night have a count of how many Americans had died and how many enemies had died and how many casualties there were. And it was really, like, it was a sort of horrific, and that went on for a, a long time. So it was a kind of horrific encounter with death. And Helter Skelter was really kind of more part of that for me mm-hmm. um, than, uh, than it was a sense of it being a true crime it was just sort of the world is kind of this out of control, incredibly dangerous place. But then when I thought about it, um, it occurred to me that uh, the first time I really remember as a child hearing about a crime and having it have a, a true crime and having have it a, having it have an effect on me 
was the Kitty Genovese murder, which was very famous. Okay, so um, give us your episode time, title and numbers just so we be. can do that thing where we each found a true crime TV special, a one-hour special about our, the individual cases we're going to present today. And Eric will give his. Now, it was an episode of A Crime to Remember entitled 38 Witnesses. And the season and episode number? It's season two, episode one. Okay. And again, as we always say here at True Crime TV Club, not at all a requirement and not necessarily even recommended that you go and watch the episode because we're going to serve it up for you today and you will walk away feeling as if you have watched it. But why don't you dive in with yours and then after you're done, I'll reveal mine. Yeah. And to be fair... It wasn't this television show that I first encountered. No. It was the crime itself. It's the first time I can remember um, having being aware of a of a of a crime, a murder, but a crime specifically, and having a feeling about it and a curiosity about it. Now, this crime became really famous. Well, I guess I'll get into it as I go along, but it became really famous as a sort of, um, as what has ultimately become an example of something I'm really not fond of, a sort of uh, lazy uh, narrative-based reporting where reporters come up with a story and a narrative for a story, and then they fit the facts of the news to support their narrative uh, instead of actually reporting the story. Um, There have since been revelations about this story. And I have to say, I was this particular telling. I'm really glad we did this because there was new ones. I was astonished by this telling of this crime. It was as though I was once again being exposed to a completely new crime. Okay, so here's what happened. Um, Can I stop you for a second? Because what I want to know where little Eric was when he first heard of the story. Like, do you remember that? Literally just getting there. That was oh, just I thought you said, well, here's what happened. I thought you were going to start with no, Kitty. Okay, go ahead. I was, Sorry. In, I was at First Methodist Church. This is how I remember it. It may have been a different, somewhat slightly different version of this, but I was at First Methodist Church in Natchitoches, Louisiana. I was a little kid. Um, this crime took place in 1964, but I don't think I was that little. So I think it was a year or more after that, but it was around that time. Um, and the, as I recall it from the pulpit, the Reverend Jolly Harper, our Reverend's was name was that Jolly. Really? His name? You didn't make Jolly, that up in a Tennessee Jolly, Williams play? Jolly Harper. No, I was actually born in a Tennessee Williams play and then later escaped. But the minister's name was actually Jolly Harper. Um, Wow. And like young Sheldon, my mom actually worked at the First Methodist Church. I don't know if she did at this time because we came and went from Natchitoches a bit. But um, anyway, um, he was telling this story of the Kitty Genovese murder from the pulpit and this was the reason that the story was legendary. This was the reason this became such a famous true crime case and that I was aware of it. Um, Kitty Genovese was a 20-something-year-old woman coming home late from work in the big, bad, terrible city of New York. And she was attacked and stabbed and raped by a man on the street outside of her apartment building where, according to the story, 38 witnesses witnessed the crime and none of them did anything to help her or went to her rescue. Um, and she died. And In the street? Did she die on the scene? Yes, in yeah. the street. Uh, she died, yeah, nearby. Um, mm-hmm. She had managed to get herself pull herself slightly off the street, but only slightly oh um, mm-hmm. um, into the lobby. But, um, but yeah, she was, it was, and it was presented as this sort of, and the reason the minister was, was this indifference for another human being, mm-hmm. you know, big city life and the callous 
uh, world yeah. of people who'd become inured to crime. Hundreds of people were murdered in New York that year. So it was, you know, like it was not as uncommon as all that. And here her own neighbors were, you know, not acquainted with her and didn't want to get involved. And so they didn't um, react and help her. And so, mm-hmm. you know, she died. That's how was, I knew the story. Yeah. And that's that's the story of Kitty Genovese. And in many ways, the Kitty Genovese murder is largely responsible for the development of 911 mm. um, in this country. We did not at the time have 911. There wasn't an easy emergency call that you could make. Um, you had to call your local police the front desk at your local police convince them that there was a crime going on because, you know, they might think you should mind your own business. And, you know, then maybe then they would respond and then maybe they would call in an ambulance. But like the sort of notion of an emergency response to a crime situation didn't really exist. And so it really was kind of on your neighbors to do it. And there was, not a system, an easy system in the place for them. And so they would have had to do a lot more than just simply call 911. So it was disturbing to me as a kid. You know, it was yeah, very... totally. It really stuck with me. Um, and it wasn't until many years later, I would say relatively recently, in the last three to five years, that I saw a different version of this story. It's a... It's a um, it's a, I think it's called Witness. Um, hmm. It is a, it's a documentary that mm-hmm. I, is probably available on Prime or HBO or something, but I think on Prime, um, about the murder. And, you know, like, literally nothing could be further from the truth. Kitty Genovese died really? in one of her, na- Kitty Genovese died in one of her neighbor's arms. Um, wow. The neighbors called the police. The neighbors called out to the man and made him stop attacking her. Um, The man returned and murdered her, but it was after she had crawled out of it. She was not visible to um, almost anybody most of the time during the commission of the crime. Like it was a, it was a complete uh, misrepresentation of um, what actually happened and really sort of slimed the neighborhood um, where it happened and the people and New York city and, Mm -hmm. You know, like, yes, you know, maybe not the most sensitive place in the world, but my experience of New York when I lived there was always, if you, like, maybe New Yorkers don't want to get all involved, get all up in your business, as they say, but if you if you fall down, if you slip and fall walking down the street on New York, you will be helped back to your feet and people will determine that you are okay. Mm-hmm. Before they ghost you, before they vanish, Mm -hmm. never Mm -hmm. wanting to know your name or be a part of it. And if you're not okay, they will see to it that help is summoned. Like it is not, it has never been my experience of New York that people are indifferent to you. And Mm -hmm. it wasn't the case here either. Um, Wow. I had no idea. Which is really, yeah, which is really sort of, okay, so fast forward. So I remember this is the case and I remember that there's that. And then I find this, Christopher and I have this conversation and I find this TV show. And I thought, you know, I had already been as surprised as I was going to be about this case. And so then I watched this TV show and it blows me away. Kew Gardens, wow. Queens, 1964, um, at 3.20 in the morning, across the street from the 10-story tall Mowbray Apartments, people heard a woman screaming. Mm. And many, many people went to the window to see if they could see and what was going on. She called out she was being stabbed. I mean, it was not nothing. Um, Most people couldn't see her, couldn't tell what was going on, weren't sure. Uh, um, uh, One couple did, however, um, see that that a man was attacking her and the Mm -hmm. man, the Mosers, opened the window and yelled out. Um, for her Jesus. to, uh, for the man to leave that woman alone and the man ran away. Wow. And, um, the woman got to her feet and was staggering down the street. Um, and they weren't sure if she was drunk or what was going on, but she was 
up and walking and she walked around a corner and out of their um, ability to see her, Mm -hmm. right? They then um, saw the man come back with wearing a fedora now and the Mm -hmm. man went to called the police and his wife said, oh, surely somebody else will have called. And one of the things they talk about on this episode is that if you are in a crime situation that's being witnessed by a larger number of people, you are less likely to have a, a, a help summoned. People right. are less likely to call because oh everyone in the crowd assumes that somebody else has called 911. Oh I always God, see it on horrifying. the TV shows where they say, yeah. call 911, and you think, you call 911, you know, right. but like, why is it like, that seems like a ridiculous thing to say, but you really should say it because apparently mm-hmm. if there are a bunch of people witnessing the crime, it is very likely that nobody is calling because they think somebody else is calling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I forget what the rule is called, but it's a valuable lesson um, should you be a member of a group of people witnessing a crime. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors, and you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Okay, so... They see um, the car um, back out of the scene. The It wasn't the Mosers. It was the Cashkins. Sees the man back his white compact car out of the scene and then return wearing the fedora. And that's when they go to call the police. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the, the, the man follows the blood trail, follows her into a secluded place to mm. continue to murder and then rape her. Jesus. Apparently in that order. So it's sort of hideous. Oh, my um, God. Really? And they hear her, and people hear that she is screaming, um, but nobody really sees anything. However, one person, the doorman at the Mowbray Hotel, I mean, apartment house, that's right across the street from where the crime initially begins, Mr. Joseph Fink, the appropriately named Fink, sees the crime um, happen initially sees them break up and the woman leave. And then, you know, rather than go check on the woman or see if anything's wrong, he goes for a coffee break. Oh, my God. Okay. Or at least that's what he tells the police. Oh, okay. Um, Carl Ross, one of the other neighbors, does call the police. Um, and But by the time they get there, he doesn't have much information. Um, and by the time the police get there, she is dead, really at the foot of the stairs in Carl's mm-hmm. apartment building. Um Okay, so that's pretty much the story as I had always heard it, um, but with the new details of them, the the two people being added in. Right. Carl Ross yeah. actually saw what was going on and Joseph Fink, and Carl Ross mm-hmm. called the police. Joseph Fink did nothing. The doorman uh, mm-hmm. did nothing. Um, the other person who didn't... Um, do anything or even know that a crime was taking place was Kitty's roommate, uh, Mm. Marianne, because Kitty was actually a lesbian. Oh, and her roommate, Marianne was asleep in the apartment upstairs and slept through the entire crime and didn't realize that her lover was even dead until afterwards. Oh my God. Um, I had had never heard that Kitty Genovese was a lesbian that had never come up before. And, you know, like it wasn't reported to the police initially. Um, they, um, she had, she had been to work and then she got off work and went to dinner at the home of the parents of a friend of her, a guy. And so they brought, the police brought him in mm-hmm. and he, um, said that he dropped her off at her car at her workplace. And then he had a second date 
where he went and was with that was substantiating um, mm-hmm. with the other woman until, you know, the wee hours of the morning. And the police were like, well, aren't you the Romeo with two dates in the same evening? And he said, oh, Kitty didn't like um, men. Oh, wow. And so the police bring in Kitty's roommate, berate her, interrogate her for six hours, get her to admit that they were in a lesbian relationship, and basically run her out of town. She oh moves my God. within a week of the crime happening because the police tormented her so, which was, in fact... um. Part of the, you know, the the culture at that time, the relationship right. between gay people and the police. Mm-hmm. Carl, the man who called the police, who is faulted for not having done more or having responded faster, was a gay man and did not want to be involved with the police because of the history of gay people and the police in the city at the gay men oh, and the city at that particular time. God. I, and oh I God. think, I think, though they didn't say it on the television show, that the reason that the, the doorman at the building across the street didn't do anything to help her was because he knew that she was the lesbian lady who lived in the building across the street. And so he just left her to her own devices and went oh to get God. a cup of coffee. Jesus. Her neighbor did run downstairs. Um, a woman whose name I don't have in front of me right this second ran downstairs and she died in her arms. And she was the one who called out. She said, Carl, Carl, it's serious. It's Kitty. Mm-hmm. Um, she's hurt. Call the police. And so Carl called the police. Mm, my God. Okay. <clears throat> so that's the evening of the crime. Um, They've uh, they've got the witnesses tell them that he's a man, a slender man, five eight. Um, probably they think it's a man. Some witnesses thought it might be a woman. There weren't many witnesses. Most people just heard the crime. They didn't see anything. Um, some somebody actually thought it was a woman. It was a man. They thought he might be a light skinned black man, but it was dark, and they weren't certain of that. Um, and the white the people. car. They had a description of the small white compact car. Mm-hmm. Okay. Five days later, um, in Jackson Heights in Queens, a neighbor sees a guy moving stuff out of somebody's house, putting it into a small compact white car on the street. And the neighbor, and he says, what, what's going on? And the guy says, oh, I'm helping them move. Well, the neighbor knew that they weren't moving. He confirmed this with another neighbor while the guy continued, cool as a cucumber, continues to move stuff out of the house mm-hmm. um, and put it in the car. So while he's inside getting more televisions and stuff, um, the two old guys who have decided that he's not helping them move take the distributor cap off of his car and call the police who come and arrest him. Um. His name is Winston Mosley, and uh, the uh, the police officer who's interrogating with a little prodding gets Winston to admit that despite the fact that he is married, owns a home, has and has a good job, he confesses to about 30 more robberies. Oh, my God. And then... <laughs> To a series of assaults on women, which he describes in detail, including what they're wearing and what's going, you know, what's going on. And, you know, he's reluctant at first. And they said, he says, I'll bring them in here to identify you if you want me to. But, um, but, you know, and so the guy can I jump in here for a second, just a second, because I think this is something we learned in watching another special that in this time, the penalty for those types of assaults on women, if they didn't involve murder, was probably not very high. We learned that from I'll Be Gone in the Dark. That right. rape, the crime, rape was like a, not a misdemeanor, but it was like Yeah, close. like a 90-day yeah. term in jail anyway. or something. So he wasn't, so it was not, it was like housebreaking. He wasn't right. all that um, chuffed about it. He was kind of, you know, like, okay, yeah, you're right. I did. Mm-hmm. And then he describes mm-hmm. the crimes in detail. And the detective is convinced that he's telling the truth. And then... Because the man is driving a small white compact car, he contacts the detectives investigating Kitty's murder. This is Mm -hmm. five days after the murder in New York, where hundreds of murders go unsolved every year at this time. Maybe still, but certainly then. Um, Mm -hmm. 
He does match the description, so they come down and compare it, and it's the guy. He denies doing it, um, but they eventually uh, manage to get him, and very matter-of-factly, he confesses mm-hmm. um, to killing her um, and says that, yeah, he knew nobody would do anything about it, so he mm-hmm. that was why he came back and did the, and again, describes details of the crime. Jesus pretty accurately to having done it. Okay, so within five days of Kitty's murder, it's actually solved. So if it was going to be remarkable, that would be the remarkable thing about it. But it was mm-hmm. not a big deal. It was not reported in the press particularly. Nobody, you know, the media did, the watchdog media, the moral judge, judgment media who convicted mm-hmm. all of the neighbors who did, in fact, respond to her, mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. Uh, they, they didn't really report the crime at all. And so it turns hmm. out that um, 10 days after the murder, Abe Rosenthal, the Metropolitan Editor of the New York Times, and Michael Murphy, the Commissioner of Police for the City of New York, meet for lunch. Mm. And Abe is curious about a murder and begins needling Murphy for details. Not Kitty Genovese, but like a much higher profile kind of... Mm-hmm. Um, Begins needling him for details. And uh, so Murphy, who doesn't want to talk about it, says to him, well, I don't know anything about that. But we had a doozy of a murder um, oh, here just recently. 38 witnesses watched a girl murdered in cold blood oh, and none of them did anything about it. Oh, and on God. Friday, March 27th, 1964, the New York Times ran the story on the front page with the headline, 37 who fought, who saw murder didn't call the police. Jesus and it became God. the cause celeb that it became. And oh, like, like almost none of those details, like they actually reduced it to 38 because even the New York Times couldn't say nobody did anything because... One of them actually did call the police. In fact, two of them called the police. One woman did, but she was so daunted by getting the guy at the front desk that Mm -hmm. she gave up after having called the police. And the other couple, at least that we know of, didn't call because they thought somebody else would. And Carl actually did. And the friend was there to, you know, hold her in her arms as she was dying. And, like, the neighbors did not do nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, like that horrible doorman did nothing. And... But almost nobody saw anything. Most of the witnesses only heard something. Almost nobody saw anything. And after she was got away, she actually walked around behind the building so nobody could see her at the time of the actual crime. Because she was trying to get away from the assailant. She was trying to get away from the assailant. And right. she was, you know, she had been stabbed. So she probably Jesus. wasn't making the best judgment call. But she walked around and went in the back way and was like on the, that was where she was. He caught up with her. Motherfuckers. And uh, r- murdered and raped her. Um, so basically the and, story is the cops. And it was a lesbian woman. Right. The cops drove her girlfriend out of punished. town and then used uh, used the story, a false version of the story, to deflect the New York Times when they wanted to know about something else. That's yeah. the Kitty Genovese so story. Almost Jesus nothing Christ. about the story that I heard at the time or have heard in the years since or even in the because even in that um that documentary witness they didn't talk about Kitty being a lesbian or her roommate being but run out is, of town by This the is the time we are living in. And I mean, we're talking about our own case, the Billy Newton case. Stuff is cut. People are finally talking about stuff, people's sexuality in, in these older cases for the first time. You know, and it's like, it's, and I don't know if it's just because the climate in general is better for sexuality and, as a topic or what, but we're starting to uncover. And I said, you and I um have a sixth sense for this when we watch some of these specials that haven't uncovered it yet and we're like wait why were those guys alone in that motel room for three hours without a good reason they were fucking yeah you know it's like it's that's part of that's part of the importance of taking a look again at some of these older cases so anyway we didn't dig this up but it's a good it's an example of history shining a light on stuff yeah famous cases that in my entire life oh yeah I knew about it and I knew the false version and none of these details were anything you'd ever heard None. Absolutely. Wow. That they could actually trace it back to that lunch. I was just blown away. Yeah, and that's the, amazing. Running the roommate out of town was just, that just chapped my ass. And I, I, you know, like, I don't know about that doorman, but I'm willing to bet that it was about homophobia. 
Yeah, I bet. That uh, he or didn't he, or he was banging, he was sleeping with the gay guy who lived in his building who also didn't want to call. You never know. He may it, have been another gay guy yeah. who didn't want to call the police, but he was a doorman. That's the part that's really suspicious to me. Like, why wouldn't a doorman call the police in front of his own building? You yeah, know, like, that's that is just, really weird. That's just weird. Like, okay, he didn't run out and wrestle the guy to the ground, but he didn't even call the police. Like, if the doorman doesn't have a working relationship with the front desk officer in Queens, like... right. That doesn't really make any sense. How is he a doorman? Absolutely. Wow. Well, I'll have to say the case that I focused on, the first one that truly traumatized me on the news, didn't pack a wallop of new revelations, although it did well, have an impact how on did how you these become cases... aware of it? Tell us about your background. With okay, so this was in San Francisco in 1984. And under Sutro is, Tower. It, really, it was directly under my favorite Sutro Tower, which we talked about in our Best of the Worst episode. Um, 1984 is really the first year where, that I have vivid memories from. And um, the disappearance of Kevin Collins was a kind of loss of innocence event for a lot of young people who lived in the Bay Area at the time. And I'm just going to give you the headline. He was a young boy who went missing from a bus stop. And um, he was the first child, missing child, uh, whose picture appeared on the side of a milk carton. It was the beginning of that phenomenon. Oh, wow. And you could not go. And as we lay, as we learned from the People magazine investigates it, especially I'm going to talk about, the family made it a, a point that nobody could go anywhere in San Francisco without seeing his face after he disappeared. There were flyers everywhere. And it is such a haunting photo that disturbs me to this day. It, it almost looks like it was taken in studio lighting, but it's of little Kevin. He was 10 years old, standing at a chalkboard, looking back over his shoulder at the camera. And the, and it, it it's a it's a very flattering photo of a very uh, attractive little boy. Um, and he uh, became kind of an icon of an era of missing children. I think Karen Kilgariff, who was from the Bay Area, talked about it on her podcast, My Favorite Murder, about how the disappearance affected her. I got in touch with a friend of mine, uh, Lauren, who is one half of Christina Lauren, the romance writing duo, who were guests on the Dinner Party Show 1.0, our first podcast. And she told this story that just broke my heart. She was so traumatized. She lived in the, we didn't know each other, but she lived in another part of San Francisco at the time. And she was so disturbed by Kevin's disappearance that she, she didn't want to let her mother know how upset she was about it. But she didn't want to walk home from school alone because Kevin was on his way home from school when it happened. So she would work for her mother in the garden getting rid of snails and her mother would pay her for this. And then Lauren would go and use the money to buy candy bars to give to other kids so that they would walk her home from school because she was so afraid to walk Aww. home alone. But that's, that's How the, inge- what ingenuity. Yeah. She was it a very was ingenious really, child, but she was a yeah, very ingenious that's child. Really, yeah. That's, that's a, that's a child who's afraid giving away candy as a child who is afraid. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. Uh, So in piecing together the facts around the disappearance of Kevin Collins, primarily through this episode of People Magazine Investigates, which is entitled Without a Trace, it's season four, episode three, I actually discovered that part of the reason it probably frightened me so much is that he he disappeared from the neighborhood where I went to school. Uh, It's a part of San Francisco that's always been known as the Western Edition. It actually today is considered kind of an intersection of various neighborhoods, but it includes Alamo Square Park, which is where the painted ladies are, that famous sort of hillside of of brightly painted Victorians with the city in the background. Yeah. They're featured in the credits for Full House. I was just getting ready to say, right, the Full House. Um, And so my school was right around the corner from there. It was called Synergy School, and it was actually inside a Victorian, much like that. That's neither here nor there, but this is basically what happened. Um, This was a time in the history of San Francisco where 
a, a family, a, a working class family could actually live in the city, could afford to live in the city. Um, Kevin's family had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight kids. Two had moved off on their own, the oldest sisters, Laura and Michelle. The rest of those children, of which Kevin was second from youngest, lived in a five-bedroom apartment in the Western Edition with their parents. And that was Michael, Stephen, Gary, Kevin, Kenneth, and Brian. And they said the family described the apartment as just being full of playing children all the time. It was a large Irish Catholic family. Uh, and they would gather for a dinner. Five bedroom apartment in My San God, Francisco. That's like you would have to be a billionaire to have a five bedroom apartment in San Francisco today. And I remember this as a kid. I mean, and, and when this is before the dot com revolution, this is when yeah. the Mission District was so dangerous. People were like, "Don't go in the Mission after night." South of Market, forget about it. It was a slum. the The city had not revitalized to the level that it has today by any stretch of the imagination. But I remember. Families living in these large apartments right in the center of what was still a very beautiful city. So um, at any rate, because the family is so big, the only time out of the day when they're all together is at family dinner. And on this particular night in February of 1984, the family sits down for dinner and Kevin's chair is empty. The mother realizes right away something is not right. Now, Kevin is closing in on his 10th birthday at this point. He's really beginning to blossom. They said he didn't have an easy time of it being in the age range that he is because he has to sort of fight to be heard above the other, his siblings, and fight for his place at the table. But they said he was getting there. He was dealing with some pronounced dyslexia issues and was in special classes as the result of that. Um, He's attending a a, a local Catholic school that's very well known. But on this particular afternoon, he has not come home by 7 o'clock at night. Now, they know he had basketball practice. And typically what would happen after practice is that the coach would drop the kids off one by one in a van. There was a van dedicated for this purpose, or maybe the coach owned the van. I think it's probably a school van because it's a lot of kids if it was the entire basketball team. Um, The mother calls the school gets in touch with the coach and the coach says Kevin didn't get in the van which I've got to put a highlight under is not really addressed in the course of this special I have to say that's pretty big for me like yeah you didn't go look for him like what kind of adult coach responsible person Mm -hmm. are you that the 10 year old didn't get in the van so you just drove off without him now the reaction as it's depicted in this one hour episode of television is they didn't really think that was the weird thing. And it may be possible that Kevin routinely walked home from school if he was feeling like it, because it wasn't very far. It sounds like because the first response of the family is that Kevin's father and one of the older brothers set out to retrace his steps. They quickly run into a family friend who says, yes, I saw Kevin waiting for the bus at the corner of Masonic and Oak streets, which is in the area. Um, They go to the bus stop. There's no sign of him. This is the part where history plays a role. Okay, so they go to the police and the police say, eh, he's probably out playing with his friends because in those days, and this made me have to sit down for a bit, if a child went missing, the police did nothing for three days. Wow. Yeah. Three days effing days pardon can you imagine can you imagine that today lost their minds or started the investigation themselves because and that's exactly what they did i can't imagine waiting three days by the time the cops showed up three days later they had done so much work the cops just sort of fell into the investigation that was already in progress so david the father goes out searching the hate ashbury section uh looking for kevin uh, Anne, his mother, stays by the phone constantly, convinced that at some point Kevin is going to call and she doesn't want to miss it. She calls the older sisters, Michelle and Laura, who live on their own, as I said earlier. They come over and they basically take over parenting duties of the, like the family really came together and did the best job of this they could. The sisters take over parenting of the younger boys. Anne is by the phone. David is out conducting right. the search, walking, Good. all that sort of stuff. So three days later, the cops finally decide to show up at the Collins home. Um, they This is the moment where they said, okay, what we need to do is we need to get his face out there. They put that picture I described on a flyer. 
Um, and the mother says, we made it our business to make sure nobody in San Francisco could go anywhere without seeing Kevin's face. And once again, with that many kids, they had yeah. a battalion to go out and paper the city. Yeah. And I, I can I can attest to this. As somebody who was there, you couldn't go anywhere without seeing Kevin's face. It was part of, I think, what was so disturbing for other kids about the case. But it was absolutely essential and necessary. And it did generate a sighting. A, a classmate said... Uh, that he had spotted Kevin at um, on Masonic and Hate Streets, which is close to where he was last seen, which was on Masonic and Oak, and that he was in the presence of a man who had a big black Great Dane on a leash. They find another witness who says, I also saw Kevin and the man with the dog, but they were further down the block from that location. So they tracked this man down. And when the man opens the door of his home, which is also just a few blocks away from Masonic, where these sightings have taken place, the police show um, their badges and he says, I've been expecting you. The man's name is Dan Therian. Uh, he lived exactly a block away from the bus stop where Kevin was spotted during one of those sightings. Therian admits right off, Therian, excuse me, he's been arrested in the past and he was arrested in 1981 for a crime involving a child. In Fisherman's Wharf, which is a popular tourist area of San Francisco, he took a child out of a store. The child was able to run and get away and scream, and a radio car was summoned and took him into custody. The oh man, uh, Darian, skipped out on his bail. He was rearrested, and he was sentenced to six months in prison. Uh, he's got because a room. Taking a child is, you know, six months, slap on uh -huh. the wrist, don't do it again. Yeah. He's got a roommate named Jack Chow who has no arrest record at all. He's present when the police enter the home. They search the home and find nothing suspicious. He denies all knowledge of Kevin's disappearance because there is no physical evidence there. They uh, All they do is they take Therian's mugshot, put it in a photo spread and bring it back to those witnesses who say they saw Kevin in the presence of a man with a black Great Dane, and the witnesses are not able to pick Therian out of the photo lineup. So, the cops... So Therian doesn't say that he saw the kid and talked to him, even though he has the black Great Dane. You know, that's a good question, and I don't know if they skimmed over it or not. I don't think he does. Like, I, I, I think he... I think what he says when they open the door, I've been expecting you, is I, I knew there was a child missing, and because I have this history, I thought you were going to come knocking on my door. Um, but anyway, so let me... So they... Um, Anne doesn't leave the house for two weeks because she's so afraid that Kevin is going to call. And as I said earlier, the older sisters basically take over parenting duties. And so this is when the media starts to play a role. The police discover that a foster child who was living with the Collins family got into a physical altercation with David, the father. And it was believed that David broke um, the boy's leg. Uh, so they zero oh. in on him as a suspect. They make him take a lie detector test. And I think I remember this part father? of the story. David, the father. The father, okay. Kevin's father. He passes and they clear him, but I remember that leaking out. I can remember, really? oh, the father. Okay. Um, everything else they look into is a dead end, but local attention on the case is snowballing, and that's when a, a Northern California dairy farmer says, we're going to put Kevin's face on the side of our milk cartons. And within weeks, he's, in, he's the face on every milk carton in America. And this was incredibly helpful for Anne's mental health because she was starting to really get seriously depressed. She starts a foundation and incorporates it as a nonprofit mission. And as part of that, they install a 24-hour 800 hotline in their own home. It literally feeds to the phone in their own home and it's never turned off. So Anne was never not working on this and part of her brain at least. Um, and to keep the foundation sort of going, they start to take on the cases of other missing children. They start to distribute their pictures as well. And because more and more time is going by without a single lead in Kevin's case, but they want to remain focused on it, but they're also sort of turning it into their higher calling, right. missing kids in general. Yeah, like Adam. Right, Adam Walsh. Um, four weeks after he vanished, Kevin is pictured on the cover of Newsweek magazine. Wow. It's the photo I described earlier. Yeah, it's just he's becoming this sort of 
emblem, I don't know if emblem is the right word, but there were a lot of these cases in the 80s in particular, and he was sort of the face of them. So this is when I, I feel so, the, okay. Kevin is now missing for 17 months. And this is when his case appears to intersect with another case that is kind of a horrifying chapter in California crime history and crime history in general. And that is the arrest of a man named Leonard Lake in regards to a shoplifting allegation that is not, let's say, elegantly summarized by this episode of People Magazine Investigates. But if anyone is familiar with the case of Charles Ng, and Leonard Lake, they know that they are two of the most sadistic and depraved serial killers in history, period, let alone California. So this is 1985, right? 17 months after Kevin has gone missing. The police get a call that an Asian man has tried to steal a vice from a hardware shop. The police arrive and find that this man has apparently just left his parked car behind. Maybe he took off running. A white guy approaches them who is not matching the description of who they were looking for. He introduces himself as Scott Stapler. He says, this is actually my car. The guy you're looking for is a friend of mine. This is a misunderstanding. And they say, well, will you open the trunk? And so he agrees. He opens the trunk. The vice is there. And next to it is a pistol with an illegal silencer. So they immediately arrest this guy. They're like, I don't know what's going on here. This isn't about a vice. Why do you have this gun? They take him into the police station. They find out that he has introduced himself under a fake name, Scott Stapleton, I believe. He's really Leonard Lake. They bring him into an interrogation room. They prepare to question him, and he says, can I get some? Can I get a drink of water? And they're like, sure. And so they leave him in the room. They come back with the water. He takes a swallow. Several minutes later, he begins to convulse. He hits the floor, and he goes into massive seizures because he has taken a cyanide pill that he had taped to the underside of the lapel of his shirt. And this is how the police end up discovering one of the worst murder mills in serial killer history. Oh it is God. an abandoned, or isolated cabin, I should say, in the Sierra Nevada mountains. They discover... Um, Meanwhile, he's in a coma. The cyanide has put Leonard Lake in a coma. He's in the hospital. He can't respond to any questions. Um, the vehicle, papers in the vehicle, lead them to this cabin that I just described. They discover a torture chamber on site. They oh discover God. pictures of victims who appeared to be held captive. And while searching the grounds, they discover 50 pounds worth of bone fragments at various oh. bone sites on the property. They find videotapes of the torture and the murder, murders of these victims. They find a map that leads them to bunkers buried in the ground. And inside, they find the personal IDs of their victims, along with journals in which Leonard Lake documented years worth of these crimes. It's just a hideous case. So as Jesus. Anne Collins is sitting in her apartment and the phone rings and a reporter says, how do you feel about the fact that your son's bones were found at that cabin in the Sierra Nevadas? And she loses her mind. I, I mean, literally, so. of all. Did they find of, his bones there? No, they had not found his bones. Somebody had speculated. They found out that Leonard Lake and he was working with a partner who's currently missing in this moment named Charles Zhang. And they just speculated, well, they kidnapped some victims from San Francisco. We think some of these bones might be the bones of children. It turned out they were. But there was no definitive match to Kevin. And there was never a match to Kevin. But for a brief period of time, Ann Collins and the family had to live with the possibility that their little boy was abducted by two of the most hideous serial killers in oh, the history of the planet. The okay? poor woman. Oh I know. So um, anyway, so once they determine that there's not a match, the connection to that case evaporates, thank God, for them. Um a Charles Ng footnote on this, because this is really like a whole nother story we could do a true crime TV club about. Charles King, uh, Charles Ng, excuse me, is captured in Canada and he's eventually convicted of the murders of six men, 
three women and two infants. But these are these are like a pair of serial killers that inspired countless horror movies. Like you read about Infant, their case and you're infants. like infants. They killed infants. They killed infants. The the and, and again, like I don't want to go totally down the Charles Ng and Leonard Lake Road. This is what they would do. Another show. They would lure women to this cabin and pretend to be photographers. And if the women brought their fa- and it would be like for wedding photos or stuff like that or and whoever the woman brought with them, they would kill. And then they would take the women captive and torture them. It's one of the most hideous, absolutely one of the most hideous stories. I realized I had watched a special about it years ago and suppressed it and that they had actually, without my realizing it, inspired um, the serial killers in my Burning Girl series who kill the heroine's <laughs> mother. Like I had turned them into a man and wife duo in my head. Oh, my God. So, um Jeez. In 1986, like this is becoming the fate of the Collins family, which is every time there's a horrible right. serial killer case in their area, people are like, is, is it connected to Kevin? Kevin? Yeah. Uh, the police discover a horrific series of murders in the Bay Area committed by a killer who targeted young boys. And Leonard Lake and Charles Ng didn't. They killed boys if they were brought to the farm, but they were focused on female abductees and prisoners an inmate at the san luis obispo state prison tells authorities that his cellmate john dunkel who's in prison for residential burglary killed two 12 year old boys and one 15 year old boy between 1981 and 1984 in northern california but he says there's a fourth murder where he didn't know the name of the victim Dunkel has already been the prime suspect in the three murders for a while the other three where they know the names the police ask him to speak, and he says, I will only talk to FBI agents. When the FBI agents show up, he issues a full convention. And he's, uh, confession, excuse me. I was going to say, convention? I know. Uh, no, God, please. No, not, I, I would never said foot in a John Dunkel convention. Um, he wanted to see what it felt like to kill. And he talks about a victim that he kidnapped and threw off the Golden Gate Bridge. Oh, my God. God. He's brought up on murder charges in San Mateo County. Uh, he would pick his victims up. He would give them rides. So again, you think of Kevin at the bus stop or walking right. down the street, Eating maybe a wanting a ride home. He was briefly employed by the IRS in San Francisco during the time of Kevin's disappearance. And when the San Francisco Police Department show up, he naturally refuses to cooperate. Suddenly, he doesn't want to talk anymore. Right. And that's it for John Dunkel. They never got another thing out of John Dunkel. However, four years after Kevin's disappearance, Anne realizes basically that her family's going to need more of her than this foundation she started. And her husband basically accuses her of of giving up. She's that she's basically buried Kevin in her mind and he hasn't let him go. And it ends their marriage. And in 1989, they're divorced. And um, on February 10th, 1994, the family holds a private memorial service and they dedicate a simple marble bench in Kevin's memory at Holy Cross Cemetery. Um, That was very moving. The aunt that they interviewed uh, broke down into tears when she talked about it. It was raining and it was like the bench is not a headstone because they still can't commit entirely to this idea that he's gone. But it is a way to honor what memory they have of him. Right. So in 2013, something happens, and I'm not sure what triggers it, and they don't really go into it, but the family, the SFPD decides to really pick up the case again and reopen huh. it, and they put two new detectives on Maybe there was a it. podcast. Maybe so, right. They take it over as a cold case homicide, um, and they return to the initial lead that they apparently think was eliminated too quickly, and that is Dan Therian, the man with the big black Great Dane. Totally. Uh, Using new search technology, they find that the man with the dog had other charges they were completely unaware of. He was also wanted in Canada for kidnapping and molesting two young boys. He jumped bail there the same way he jumped bail over the charge in San Francisco and made it to the Bay Area and nobody caught up with him. But he's dead. However, they go back to his home at the time. And realized that nobody ever examined the garage area extensively, which is one of those details that makes you want to pull out your hair and scream. And so they contact the current owner of the home. They bring in cadaver dogs. The dogs react. They obtain a search warrant. They get permission to dig up the floor of the garage. They remove the concrete, scrape away the earth. They find bones, 
but they're not a match for Kevin. The further they investigate, however, they discover that roommate Jack Chow, he's still alive. And he wasn't just his roommate. He was his boyfriend. They were actually romantically involved, and after Dan died, he moved to Canada. It takes a while to locate him, but he does agree to talk, and they interview him twice. He gives them information, and they don't say what it is, but they say Jack gives information to the SFPD that leads them to believe that Dan did, in fact, kidnap Kevin. They suspect that Jack knows more than what he's saying. So upon learning this, the Collins family says to the San Francisco Police Department, we will support an immunity deal with Jack. You can make an immunity deal with Jack to get him to talk. If we can just get closure. Yeah. Yeah. And they won't do it. The San Francisco Police Department has yet to make the deal. Within this special, there's not an explanation of what their reasoning is, but that it is definitely depicted as the resistance is not coming from Jack. It's coming from the San Francisco Police Department. It might also be coming from Canadian authorities. I don't know. But... Um, that's where the story ends, as we know it. Now, I did a little uh, internet research, and there were bones discovered in a planter in the Western edition. Um, and I want to say, I don't know, not too long ago. And everyone thought, yeah. oh, maybe it'll be Kevin. Maybe it'll be. It wasn't Kevin. So the last note of the television special about this is the aunt showing all the newspaper articles that she saved because she was convinced that one day. Kevin would come back and she would show all of them to him to show him how much they loved him, you know, to prove to him when he was gone. And that really got me, you know. But for me, it was like this was a loss of innocence event for a lot of children in the Bay Area because it was like we are not invulnerable. Our parents cannot protect us from everything. It's a dangerous world. It was a dangerous world. You know, it was a dangerous world. And I, I, I had a similar reaction when Lauren told me that story because I remember the fear, you know. But I also remember taking the bus places after this happened. I would get on the city bus and go because there there, there was that sense, like you described with New York, that if you were out with other people and you fell, you know, you would whatever. But I also remember this, which is that this crime made everybody more vigilant, particularly around kids. You know, right. this was stranger danger became a thing, but and good, you know, like yeah, I'm still mad at the coach. Yeah. He should not have left without that ten year old on that bus. Yeah. But in his was that another area that like the three days thing, like a change was made and how oh, we accounted for God. children. You know? I look back at my own childhood and think, what was anybody thinking? Right. You know, the stuff that I do and that I got up to in the places that I went. Yeah, it was a very the the sense that other people were involved in the raising of your child was a lot more prevalent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Le- letting them go was based on a trusting of the other adults in the world that people right. would look out for your kid mm-hmm. as you would look out for theirs. And maybe that was true. I don't know. But that was a part of what I think informed that belief and that behavior. But. Yeah. yeah, I think we've been disabused of that notion to the point now that I'm not sure children are ever allowed to play in their front yards. There was a story recently of a woman who allowed her children, I, they were young, they might have been six and seven, to walk yeah. from her house to the. She got in trouble with the police. I know. She got in trouble. And she fought it. It is a real debate right now. Yeah. People, parents are saying, no, you have to give children some kind of freedom or they grow up with no skills at all. So well, I, I don't know that that's settled. It's a terrible burden to place on parents, you know, and I'm not a parent. We talked about this some on the previous episode, the the perils of parenting, the pressures of it, to say that I have to protect my child from every breeze in the world, that I have to put my child in a bubble. It's like, there, it's it's got to be hard, you know, the the stress that it introduces to parenting. If you feel like you can't really count on anyone outside your door to have your child's best interests at heart. I, the only, the closest I've ever gotten to raising a child is writing, say, uncle. And we all know what Uncle Michael did when his six year old had to go to first grade. So, yeah. He dressed up as a gardener and went to school to make sure he didn't get hurt by the other kids. So he could watch through the window and keep an eye on the kid. Like, I don't know how people do it. 
Yeah. I don't know how people let their kid go. The Eitan Pat story from New York always haunts me because that kid was six. Mm-hmm. Going to the bus stop in New York, a six-year-old in New York, like, I just, I don't know where anybody would have the nerve. Anyway. I, 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 yeah, it's we could go on and on about it, but, that, but those yeah, were the we, first, but, yeah. Those were our, yeah, those are both pretty memorable cases. And interesting that they both ultimately had cultural phenomenons, the development Mm -hmm. of 911 and the sort of, you know, putting the kids on the milk carton, the kind of Mm -hmm. raised consciousness around missing children. Absolutely. So next week, um, we have an update on the murder of William Newton. Oh my God. Yeah. We such an exciting episode. Yes. uh, We covered this case in episode 48. This is a case. This is not a true crime TV club. This is a case that happened in our community, in our neighborhood in 1990. It's an unsolved murder. The gruesome unsolved murder of uh, Billy Newton, whose dismembered body parts were found in a dumpster in Hollywood. Uh, on the 30th anniversary of the case, we had accounts from the detective who found the body uh, and as well as a possible eyewitness to Billy's last movements. And so we have updates to bring you based on responses we got to our previous episode. We want to thank all of our party people for keeping our posts about it alive and for commenting. And, and if um, you know anything... We still uh, the, have that email address. Absolutely. William Newton Investigation at gmail.com is open for your tips and recollections. If you were in the area at the time, he was last seen at Rage Nightclub in West Hollywood on Sunday, October 28th. Uh, 1990. So yeah, we will have an update next week. If you want to brush up on some of the facts of the case, although we will summarize them again as best we can, episode 48 is where we really did the deepest dive on it. And this will hopefully supplement that and but continue But yeah, you that. don't want to miss next week's episode because no, it's really, yeah, this is big. Until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw-Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher... And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.